the Treasury document, I believe, which which was from around 2018, did propose that the concept of distributable surplus would be abolished, ostensibly for the view that that would simplify Division 7A. And that was subject to quite a lot of criticism because it's seen as, well, okay, yeah, it might be a bit complex to work out, but why should there be a deemed dividend when the amount represents capital and the company has no profits? You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Episode 353 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson, and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Distributable surplus is a phrase you only hear when talking about Division 7A. It's an important concept since you can only have a deemed Division 7A dividend if there is a distributable surplus. If there is none, no deemed Division 7A dividend. But how do you determine this distributable surplus? Do you just take retained earnings? What about share premium reserves and what about capital profits reserves when you park capital gains from pre-CGT assets until the company gets liquidated? Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne will answer all these questions in this episode. But before we start, let's do two things. The first one is I really would like you to listen to a short excerpt from episode 149 with Peter Adams. Peter discusses how the distributable surplus can be one way out for a Division 7A loan. It is one of five so-called Division 7A fixes. Division 7A, quick fix number three. The other side of the equation, which is actually quite an important bit, of how Division 7A operates. Because then I say to myself, okay, I haven't made a loan agreement. I haven't paid it back. So that technically means if I take out a $100,000 loan that I haven't fixed, that the unfranked deemed dividend will be 100000 that I have to disclose in my tax return. And let's just talk about a direct loan to a shareholder. First point is where do I put in my tax return? Because a lot of accountants don't even deal with this side of things because they normally fix it. So you don't get this result. But if I do get this result, where does it go? Well, it actually goes into the normal dividend section of the individual tax return because there's no deemed dividend section. So it goes into the normal dividend section. It just doesn't have any franking credits ascribed to it. But it sits under item 11 of the individual tax return. That's where it goes. So then I say to myself, well, okay, I've got a $100,000 loan. What amount do I put in this unfranked deemed dividend? Now, normally, logically, I'd say I won't put in 100000 as unfranked dividend because that's the amount of the loan. But Division 7A doesn't quite work like that. And this is based on the normal operation of our tax law. If we think about the normal operation of our tax law and dividends in particular, is the fact that it's a dividend, is it that fact that makes it taxable? And the answer to that is no. A dividend is not in itself taxable. A dividend is taxable if the dividend is paid out of profits. So the definition of dividend in our law says it's any payment to a shareholder except an amount, except an amount. So there's two trigger sections here. There's the definitional section of what a dividend is. 
Then you have section 44, subsection 1, which says a dividend is only taxable if it's made out of profits. But then you say, well, what's a dividend first? Well, a dividend is any payment to a shareholder except a payment that's a return of capital. And so if it is a dividend, the next step is to say, well, if it is a dividend, is it a taxable dividend? Well, it's taxable if it comes out of profits. So we know that link exists. So Division 7A tries to follow that same dynamic. It says, well, you've stripped out cash out of the company. We have no right to treat the cash as a deemed dividend unless it's actually come out of profits. So it applies the same dynamic. But this is where it diverges from the norm. It says not that we won't treat it as a taxable dividend if it's not out of profits, but it doesn't use profits as a base at all. It uses a concept called distributable surplus. And distributable surplus is essentially a balance sheet concept. It has as its main component net assets of the company on balance sheet. And then it has some variables within it because it says you need to take off previous non-commercial loans, Division 7A loans that's sitting there on the balance sheet, non-commercial loans, the paid-up amounts of those loans you take off. The only other thing you take off that might be of note typically is paid-up share value. So it's actually your net assets less your paid-up share value. That's your distributable surplus. Now, if it's balance sheet, and I'm saying to myself, when I go and do these numbers, I've got a $100,000 loan here. But when I go to the balance sheet of that company for 30 June, I actually have a distributable surplus based on net assets minus paid up share value of 50000 So what does that mean? Well, I've got a $100,000 debit loan to the shareholder of that company. We haven't fixed the loan. We haven't paid it back. So it's now going to be an unfranked deemed dividend. But the unfranked deemed dividend can never be more than the company's distributable surplus. And in my case, the company's distributable surplus is only $50,000. So I've got $100,000 of cash flowing out as a loan to the shareholder, but he only puts in or has to put in only an unfranked dividend equal to the distributable surplus, which is only $50,000. What happens to the other $50,000 then? He's got $100,000 worth of cash in his pocket. No tax on the other $50,000. Ever. Ever. And that's the important bit. Ever. The distributable surplus out is an absolute out. It doesn't matter that the next year your distributable surplus is $5 million. All that matters is what is the distributable surplus in the year the loan is made. And so this is a strategy point for accountants. As of the 30th of June in which the loan is made. So if I'm sitting there as an accountant, very often accountants will tell you they've picked up the Division 7A problem from the balance sheet already and they fixed it. And so all they did to fix it was to run around doing loan agreements. And they made minimum repayments on this 100000 that they now need to make the minimum repayments on. But I bet you if I put this proposition to my client and I say to my client, listen, we've got two options to fix this $100,000 loan problem in the context of Division 7A. We can do a loan agreement for $100,000 
you then have to make minimum repayments on that plus the required interest for the next seven years. That's your one option. Second option. Distributable service is only 50000 So you put 50000 in your tax return for this year and you never have to worry about this thing again. You just have to pay the tax on the 50000 But the other 50000 you get tax-free. Now, I would bet most clients in that situation would suggest maybe the second option is the preferred option. So this is something that the ATO had tried to revisit and there were some murmurings within Treasury to perhaps bring this back to a profit concept, as is the case with a normal dividend, and take it away from this balance sheet distributable surplus concept. That has never happened. And it's still there as a basis for quantifying the actual deemed dividend that comes out of the making of the debit loan out of the private company to the shareholder. And so what I often say to accountants that I talk to is before we go around trying to put in loan agreements in place, see how low we can bring this number down because that might be a better outcome than having to do a loan agreement making minimum loan repayments for seven years. So it's one of those strategies that we are getting a little bit more tuned to exploring more before we just go around doing loan agreements. So this is why the distributable surplus is so important. If you have none, no deemed Division 7A dividend. Now, the second thing I would like to do with you is walk through Section 109Y ITAA 36 because that is where the distributable surplus lives. It tells you how to determine, how to calculate this thing. Section 109Y has five subsections and the first subsection just tells you if the deemed Division 7A dividend is more than the distributable surplus, then you recognize the relevant portion of the dividends as per the formula in subsection 3. And this sounds rather lame and boring when you first hear it, but it actually establishes the fundamental concept of this all. The concept that a Division 7A dividend whether you recognize it or not, that that depends on the amount of distributable surplus, that you only recognize a dividend to the extent you got this surplus. Subsection 2 is the one where you will spend most of your time in this episode. It tells you how to calculate this thing. You take net assets plus Division 7A loans, less non-commercial loans, less paid-up share value, and less repayment of non-commercial loans. Of course, this is very quick now. It Andrew Henshaw will go through this step by step and we will also touch on it in a minute. So that is subsection 2. And then there is subsection 2a, a later insert about non-commercial loans. Let's skip 2a here. Then you have subsection 3 and that is the formula. How to apportion each dividend when you have several Division 7a dividends but not enough surplus. You just prorata all the Division 7A dividends and Section 109Y calls this, these dividends, by the way, provisional dividends. So they don't say Division 7A dividends, they just say provisional dividends. And word for word, the formula reads as the amount of a dividend that a private company is taking under this division to pay is the provisional dividend times the distributable surplus for the year of income and then divided by the total of all provisional dividends. So you take one dividend at the time and divide it by the total of all the dividends. And that percentage you then apply to the distributable surplus. 
And that is the portion of the dividend you recognize as an unfranked deemed dividend in the individual tax returns of the loan recipients. And you might wonder now, why do you need an apportionment? Why would you have several provisional dividends in the first place? Yes, you might have a Division 7A loan from different years, but that doesn't give you several Division 7A dividends because once a dividend is out under Section 109Y, it is out for good. Do you remember what Peter Adams said? No tax on the other 50,000. Ever. Ever. And that's the important bit. Ever. So once a dividend is out under Section 109Y, it is out for good forever. Finito at least until you liquidate or write the loan off. So coming back to subsection 3 of 109Y, the formula to allocate your distributable surplus to different dividends. So why would you have several Division 7A dividends? And the answer is if the company made loans to different people in the same in that particular year. If the company made loans, let's say, to three different shareholders in that year, but doesn't have enough distributable surplus to cover them all, then you can't allocate the entire distributable surplus to one loan, for example, to the one with the lowest marginal tax rate, and leave the other two in the rain. You need to proportionally allocate the surplus to all three. And that is what the formula in subsection three is about. But if you only have one loan, then you don't need to worry about the formula. Then you just compare the distributable surplus to your dividend. So that is subsection three. And that is really all there is to 109Y. Subsection four is just about tedious paperwork. If you don't recognize the full dividend, since there is not enough distributable surplus, then the company must issue a written statement to the relevant recipient of that dividend. And then subsection five just tells you what should be on this statement notably the distributable surplus and then the original dividend you would have recognized if it was not for lack of distributable surplus. So that is 109Y in a nutshell. But now back to the first question. How far off are you if you just take retained earnings as a distributable surplus? Here's Andrew Henshaw for Velocity Legal in Melbourne with the answer. As a headline comment, I think the concept of using the rule of thumb of using the retained profits is a pretty good one, but they're not exactly the same things. So it's important to understand the components that make up the concept of distributable surplus. I think it's also worth just thinking about well, what, what is this getting at? What, what's the point of this distributable surplus as a concept? Because without understanding what it's trying to do, the concepts lose their meaning and it's hard to make sense of all the elements. Essentially what distributable surplus is getting at is we won't apply division 7A in situations where the company doesn't have retained profits. Let's, I'm just using retained profits as a proxy. But the point is that, well, if there's no profits that would be taxed on a dividend anyway, why would we deem dividends under a notional deemed dividend if there isn't actually any profits to tax anyway? To get all the answers, they're all contained in one, one section. It's just a long section that runs for several pages with confusing concepts. Mm -hmm. And that section is? I just look at quickly. quickly section 109Y. Section 109Y. Yeah. And if a company does not have a distributable surplus at the time that it makes a loan, 
or it makes a payment or it um, does a debt forgiveness, then it, there's no deemed dividend. And to the extent that there's a difference, there's a shortfall, then the deemed dividend is limited to the amount of the distributable surplus. And so it's section 109Y of ITAA 36. So not 97, but 36, because the whole lot of Division 7A is in 36. Correct. Which always surprises me because I kind of always feel like Division 7A is kind of a new thing. And so I always kind of instinctively think that it's in 97, but then, yeah, always. I think this was put in just before the rewrite because this was done in 97 and the rewrite was in 97 as well. So I think this was probably one of the last things to be added to the old 36 Act. So if you look at 109Y and to just confirm what you said before, the concept of the distributable surplus is basically if a company doesn't have a profit, then of course it couldn't pay a dividend and hence it can't pay a deemed dividend either. Correct? It basically just looks at that. Correct. Yep, that's correct. So now looking at section 109Y. So there's five elements that go into this, this concept and some of them will be easier to understand and some of them will be more simple in certain situations and some won't apply in others. So we have five elements. We have net assets, which is a positive amount. We have, uh, so it's added to the, the, the calculation. And that's basically just equity, correct? That's basically just assets minus liability. So that always equals equity, correct? Not necessarily. Uh, do you want me to go through each element first or, or, or go through it? Because they're, 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 they're actually quite complicated each other. Well, most of the elements are somewhat complicated. So we have five elements. I'll just canvas through what they are and then we'll go through each, each, each element and explain what it actually means. So we have net assets, then we need to plus Division 7A amounts, and then we need to subtract non-commercial loans, paid up share value, and repayment of non-commercial loans. So we have five elements and we need to go through each of them. In a broad sense, what this tries to get at is it tries to make certain adjustments to try to work out that the real profits of the company um, to work out that distributable surplus. So let's start with net assets, which is which which is hopefully a, an understandable one. Net assets is essentially what what the net assets are of the company. So assets less liabilities at the end of the income year, according to the company's accounting records. So we, we tally up the company's assets as per the accounting records, and then we subtract present legal obligations and certain provisions, which are depreciation, annual, uh, annual leave, amortization, things like that. So that means we can't just take equity. We take total assets instead. And then we just deduct present legal obligations. So that's basically all liabilities and then all depreciation and then all annual leave, long service leave, etc. Amortization. Yep. And then other provisions prescribed under regulations made for the purposes of this subparagraph. Do you know what that would be about? Not off the top of my head. I'll have to check the regulations and, and go through uh, those, but I imagine they're relatively niche. But so for most companies, the net assets per section 109Y would equal equity, correct? Well, they kind of have to. I mean, isn't that, yeah, that's the accounting formula, isn't it? Assets minus liabilities equals equals equity, right? 
And it's worth noting that the definition of net assets has a proviso that if the commissioner considers that the accounting records either significantly undervalue or significantly overvalue the assets of the company, the commissioner may substitute a value that the commissioner considers appropriate. So this could be, it could be a property, which is on historical value. It could be goodwill, which is recorded again. Most goodwill is not recorded on balance sheets. So, uh, or it could be an asset that lost a lot of value that was acquired for, for a significant price and going the other way. I see. So this is very important, basically. So if you have real estate in your balance sheet, then even if your net assets are zero, you might have unrealized gains there that basically then count as part of your net assets. So the net assets are basically at market value, not as cost. Well, as a question mark, I mean, you start with accounting records and then if the commissioner considers, so they have to exercise, he has to exercise discretion, that there's a significant overvalue or undervalue, the commissioner can make that determination. So one, it requires a discretion and two, it has to be a significant under or overvalue. And there's no, not, I'm not aware of any guidance on what significant means in that context, whether it's you know 10%, 20%, 30%. But yeah, if there's a big difference between the two, then it might it, very, it may very well be market value, not accounting records. Yeah, my gut feeling it will be real estate. You know, this, this fast moving inventory or so you basically just have the difference in the profit margin. I can imagine you get the significant undervaluing through real estate, I think. Yeah, real estate and goodwill, I think, is the two that comes up most often. Yeah, that's a good point. I completely forgot about goodwill. So first element, net assets. It's accounting records, but the commissioner could change it if there's a big difference between market value and accounting records. The goodwill is, is a dangerous one. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it shouldn't just be assumed that it's accounting records. Good. So the, the goodwill can really shoot you down from left side. Yes, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So that's net assets. Yep. Yeah, the second amount is Division 7A amounts. And this is, I'll explain what the premise is to, to understand the concept. This is amounts that the company is taken to, to make as a payment or a debt forgiveness during the income year. Because, and the reason that this is necessary is that net assets is looking at the position of the company at the end of the year. But if you make a payment or debt forgiveness during the year, then of course you're bringing the balance sheet down. So it's necessary to sort of gross the balance sheet back up by payments or debt forgivenesses that have happened during the income year. Only during that year or also in past only years? Well, this, this particular one is only during the current year. So I can just give you a simple example. We have a private company. It's made a million dollar. It has a million dollars in the bank account. It, um, lends that money on the 2nd of July and then forgives the amount on the 3rd of July. So then has $0 in its balance sheet at the end of the income year. So net assets is zero, but we need to gross that up for the forgiveness that happened during the year, because otherwise you're going to get a distributable surplus of zero when in reality there was a million dollars there. Yes, fair point. Otherwise, the whole thing would basically shoot itself into the foot because otherwise you basically, the, the thing that you try to prevent would be the thing that stops you from preventing it. Absolutely. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. So this is not going to be relevant if there is no payments or debt forgivenesses during a year. And all it's doing is bringing those amounts back in because we're looking at net assets at the end of the year. So those are the positive amounts. Those are the amounts that build up the distributable surplus. Now let's look at the amounts that the concepts that bring the distributable surplus down. The first one, which I'll explain is the most simple, which is paid up share value. Paid up share value is simply the paid up share capital of the company at the end of the income year. So would the share premium reserve, would that be part of the paid up share value? And now you probably ask me, what do I mean with this share premium reserve? I'm actually not even 100% sure what a share premium reserve is about. I just see it a lot in old companies. Would that share premium reserve, would that be part of paid up share value? So it would be deducted from the net assets? I'm not sure with a, with, with a, um, with a share premium reserve. My initial thoughts are, I would be a little bit concerned about it because it's share capital, paid up share capital of the company that's the concept. I've seen those share premium reserves as well. And I don't, I think they are a different concept to the share capital of the company. Okay, good. So they're not included. Yeah, yeah. So, and again, we want this amount to be, well, if we're going to get to a situation where there's no distributable surplus, We want paid up share value to be a higher figure. So it would be detrimental if those amounts are not included. The other example you gave earlier about a capital reserve would definitely not be included as a paid up share capital. Good. And so the paid up share capital is deducted, correct? Correct. Correct. Yep. So if you have an example where you have a company with a hundred thousand of share capital and it has a hundred thousand dollars cash. It decides to make a loan to its shareholder of $100,000. Then the company has net assets of $100,000, but it has paid up share value also of $100,000. Therefore, it has a distributable surplus of zero. Therefore, even though that loan may otherwise trigger a deemed dividend, there will be no deemed dividend because there is no distributable surplus. Yeah, and it makes sense because... I apologize if you just said that. Because there's no profits. Yeah. Exactly. So if, if this was a normal company and you were looking at making a dividend distribution, of course, you wouldn't distribute the share capital. So it makes sense that it gets deducted. Yeah, correct. So now moving on to the other two concepts, we have non-commercial loans and repayments of non-commercial loans. So these are a bit more tricky to understand. What these are getting at are amounts that have already been taxed under Division 7A. It's worth noting, these concepts are getting at amounts that have already been taxed under Division 7A and therefore bring the distributable surplus down so that you're not taxed on them twice. So a non-commercial loan is a loan the company has made, which The company has been taken to pay a dividend under Section 109D or E in an earlier income year, and that loan is still on the books of the company at the end of the income year. So let's take a simple example just to explain that concept. Let's say we've got a company with $2 of share capital and $100,000 of retained earnings. In a previous income year, 
it lends that $100,000 to a shareholder. Let's assume no, no written loan agreement was put in place. So that action has triggered a deemed dividend under section 109D. Going forward to the current income year, the net assets of the company are $100,002. So it would otherwise have a distributable surplus still, despite the fact that that amount really has already been taxed to someone as a deemed dividend. So if that $100,000 is still on the books as a loan, it's actually a non-commercial loan because it's already been treated as a deemed dividend. So we have a reduction of $100,000, bringing the, the distributable surplus back down to zero. Yep, that makes sense. Because otherwise you basically pay tax twice on the same amount. Yep, correct. And then the final concept is repayments of non-commercial loans. So this is getting at situations where the, the non-commercial loan no longer exists because it's been repaid. So let's take that same example, $100,000 of retained earnings. It's lent to a shareholder, it triggers division 7A. Shareholder then decides to repay the amount to the company anyway, because it's under a, it's a liability and so forth. The company's got cash now of $100,000. There's no non-commercial loan on the books because that's been repaid already. So we need another concept to be able to deal with this. And what this concept gets at is situations where there's been a non-commercial loan, but it's now been repaid. So it's kind of like a tracing type principle. You've got to look through and say, well, the money's repaid, it's cash now, but it was because of this non-commercial loan that's going to bring the distributable surplus down. If you don't have any other Division 7A issues, you're only going to be dealing with two concepts. You're going to be dealing with net assets and paid up share value. It gets a lot more tricky when you have potential other Division 7A issues that might alter the distributable surplus. I've dealt with a few of these in the context of pre-2009 UPEs to companies and whether those companies now have a distributable surplus or not. So it does come up um, sometimes, but the majority of cases are just net assets and paid up share capital. So going back to what you said at the very start, retained earnings is a good proxy, but you do need to dig a little bit deeper than that to get a true uh, picture on what the distributable surplus is. And you need to dig deeper if you have real estate on the books, because then you might have to look at current market value. And you need to dig deeper if you had previous Division 7A issues that have triggered a deemed dividend and slash or were repaid. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And then also share premium reserve and capital profits reserve play no role in it, which means they are part of the distributable surplus on the other side. You know, by, by having a capital profits reserve, of course, you mean, it means you have the cash on the other side in net assets. Yeah, correct, correct, correct. And it's worth noting also that the reform of Division 7A has been parked, seems like indefinitely, but the, the Treasury document, I believe, which, which was from around 2018, did propose that the concept of distributable surplus would be abolished, um, ostensibly for the view that that would simplify Division 7A. And that was subject to quite a lot of criticism because it's seen as, well, okay, yeah, it might be a bit complex to work out, but 
why should there be a deemed dividend when the amount represents capital and the company has no profits? So I think that that, that proposal has gone back to the drawing board with the rest of the Division 7A reform. Yeah, worth noting that there has been um, suggestions to abolish this concept of distributor surplus. Welcome back. So this was the calculation of the distributable surplus as per section 109Y. And you probably already got all this, but I have to admit, I really still struggled with the calculation, you know, to understand why are we deducting Division 7A amounts and why are we deducting the repayment of non-commercial loans. I still didn't really get it 100%. So if you are like me, then please bear with me and let's try to work this out together. So we start with total assets. And you just take the total assets from your balance sheet. And if you have significant goodwill or unrealized gains sitting in those assets, then the commissioner might increase that amount to market value. But for now, you just go by what you have in your balance sheet. So this is easy. You take the total assets in your balance sheet. And by the way, total assets would already include accumulated depreciation and amortization. So the total assets is already the written down value of your assets at cost. Then you deduct accounts payable and any other liabilities to third parties. Section 109Y calls this the present legal obligations of the company. So you deduct provisions for annual leave and long service leave as well. But that tends to be a thing for the big guys. Small companies tend to not really recognize provisions for annual leave and long service leave. But if you have a client who does this, then you would deduct this. So now you have what section 109 calls net assets, total assets, less accumulated depreciation, less accounts payable, less other liabilities. That is your net assets. Now you deduct your share capital. Remember, you are calculating what is available to pay out as a dividend. You can't distribute share capital, so you deduct it. So far, this is very straightforward. So far, I completely got it. But now it gets really complicated. And to make it less confusing, let's first look at section 109C, D, E, and F, because they play a big role. Section 109C is about payments treated as dividends. So if a company pays private school fees, for example, then you have a section 109C scenario. Most deductible expenses would fall under this. For closely held companies, we tend to just book those to loan and not really bother with non-deductible expenses. And so for most of us, we wouldn't have a section 109C issue, but rather a section 109D issue, which we cover in a minute. So section 109C is about payments that are then treated as dividends. So think of school fees. Section 109D is about loans treated as dividends. So if your company gives a loan, section 109D, and that is what most of us would be dealing with. Section 109E is about the company not paying its minimum repayments. So if a company doesn't repay the minimum repayments that it had to pay under a section 109N loan agreement, then you have a 109E shortfall. And that is taken to be a dividend. And then section 109F is about loan forgiveness. When your company forgives a loan to you as the shareholder, it triggers a Division 7A dividend under section 109F. But only if you hadn't recognized that amount before as a dividend. If you have, then 109G protects you. 
So these are the relevant sections. 109C about the payments, and that doesn't really apply so much to small and medium business. So payments is 109C, then loans are 109D, E is about a shortfall of minimum repayments and F is about forgiveness. So that's easy to remember, F for forgiveness. And the most relevant for us is 109D, 109D about Division 7A loans. So now we need to clarify two phrases. The first one is Division 7A amounts. Division 7A amounts get added back when you calculate distributable surplus. And the Division 7A amounts are not all Division 7A amounts. So it's not all 109C, D, E and F. It's only C and F. So only Division 7A payments under Section 109C and debt forgiveness under 109F go into these Division 7A amounts that are added back. And so now the question is, why do they get added back? Let's look at payments under 109C first. Let's say the company just sold one item for $100 of profit and so now has $100 in the bank. And now you use this $100 to pay some non-deductible expense, let's say school fees. So you book debit, non-deductible expense and then credit bank. And so now your net assets are nil. So your distributable surplus would be nil if this didn't get corrected. And so you correct it by adding the $100 back as part of a Division 7A amount. And then, of course, and then when you have added it back, it means you can recognize a deemed dividend of $100 for this payment of school fees. The same applies to debt forgiveness under Section 109F. Let's say the company has a loan receivable against the shareholder of $100. So they gave a loan to the shareholder and so now they have a receivable of $100. And so at the moment you have net assets of $100. But now the company forgives this loan. So debit expense and credit current asset. And so now net assets are zero. And so the same thing, if you didn't correct this, you would have a distributable surplus of zero and no dividend. So you need to add back the forgiven amount, provided the forgiven amount hadn't been recognized as a dividend before. If it has, then 109G protects you. So this now makes sense to me why we are adding back Division 7A amounts, why we are adding back 109C payments and also 109F forgiveness. So that's the first bit. Now we come to non-commercial loans. Non-commercial loans get subtracted. And so let's first look at what non-commercial loans are. They are Division 7A loans under Section 109D as well as the shortfall under 109E. So <laughs> now it gets really confusing. So C and F gets added back, but D and E gets subtracted. And now you might wonder why. And so let's say you have a Division 7A loan of 1 million. 1 million was loaned to the shareholder. And let's assume that happened last year. And so you already recognized the Division 7A dividend for this loan. So your net assets are 1 million. You have a receivable of 1 million in your net assets. And so in theory, you could recognize a dividend for 1 million because your distributable surplus is 1 million thanks to this loan. But then you would recognize a Division 7A dividend twice for the same amount. And so, hence, you deduct it from your distributable surplus. So, non-commercial loans, so loans under 109D and E, get deducted. 
So now we come to the repayment of non-commercial loans. Those get deducted as well. You know, my natural instinct would be if we deduct non-commercial loans, then we would add back the repayment. But for some reason, we also deduct the repayment. So we deduct the non-commercial loans, but then we also deduct the repayment of those. So that is confusing. So let's think this through. So let's assume we have this Division 7A loan of 1 million sitting on the balance sheet in current assets. And this loan has already been recognized as the Division 7A dividend. Now it gets repaid. So you have 1 million sitting in the bank and you have your Division 7A loan no longer. It's gone. Because, you know, when you received the money, you debited bank and you credited loan. So with the $1 million in the bank, your net assets and hence your distributable surplus is $1 million. So in theory, you could recognize another Division 7A loan because you have a net distributable surplus of $1 million. But you already recognized the Division 7A dividend for this Division 7A loan in a past year. So if you included this in distributable surplus, if you didn't take it out, then you would basically recognize a dividend twice for the same amount. And that's why you take it out. So does this now make more sense? You take your net assets, you deduct the share capital, you add back any amounts under 109 C and F, so any Division 7A payments and also any Division 7A loan forgiveness. So you add that back and then you deduct non-commercial loans under Division 109D and E. And then you also deduct the repayment of those because now when you repay it, you no longer have the receivable in the balance sheet, but of course now you have the money in the balance sheet. So you still also need to deduct the repayment. So that is your net distributable surplus. Now let's just quickly look at capital profits reserves. Let's assume your company has a pre-CGT block of land, which you sell with a capital gain of 10 million. You book these 10 million into a capital profits reserve, and this is where it will sit until you liquidate the company. But now you have 10 million in the bank and you loan these 10 million to the shareholder. So the company has a current asset of 10 million and that is also a 109D Division 7A issue. And since the capital profits reserve is not subtracted from the distributable surplus, the distributable surplus is 10 million. And so the full loan would result in a 109D dividend if not dealt with. So share premium reserves and capital profits reserves sound great. But you can't take the money out without falling foul of Division 7A because the distributable surplus doesn't get adjusted. So capital profits reserves sound great, but they are not actually that great because you can't take the money out. So this is the distributable surplus. In the next episode, episode 354, let's talk about Division 7A loan write-offs. You got the Division 7A issue solved for now, no deemed dividend because either the amendment period has passed or there's no distributable surplus, so no deemed dividend. But you still have the Division 7A loan sitting in your balance sheet. What do you do with it? Can you write it off? That is the question for next week. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.